This is Leela Viss, and welcome to Key Ideas. Piano teaching doesn't come bundled with ready-made solutions. And because life doesn't come with an easy button, sometimes this podcast sheds light on the topics that usually hide in the shadows. So that's why I call this episode a shadow episode. In just about every Key Ideas episode, you hear the distinct and sophisticated voice of Renee Holloman. She reads the bio of a guest or describes favorite products featured in the show. Along with being a longtime piano teacher, Renee has a full-time career as a voiceover artist, and she generously gives of her time to level up the sound of Key Ideas. I couldn't be more pleased. Renee and I first met at David Cutler's Savvy Musician Workshop back in 2016. This interactive and gritty professional development experience makes anyone friends for life. In 2017, I was invited to speak for a music teachers association in Atlanta, and Renee and her husband James hosted me in their beautiful home. We shared plenty of stories and talked piano teaching, clothes, food, kids, exercise, Just about everything you would think two close friends would discuss. But we never talked about one thing. Renee never brought it up. I never did. And yet always wondered if I should have. Fast forward to 2020. Renee and I have chatted over the months about my son Carter's accident and his healing progress. Renee confided that she was inspired by Carter and my openness about grief and trauma. After years of avoiding the topic, Renee now feels compelled to tell her story. The story of the one thing we never talked about. Now she feels ready to open up what's been hiding in the dark and believes that her story may help others just like Carter's story has. So in this episode, you are privy to our conversation as Renee recounts how she got started teaching piano, her aspirations as an actor, how her life exploded and how she now balances two careers in piano and as a voiceover artist. Both of us were concerned about how we'd keep it together. Despite it all, we made it through. Renee has been teaching piano for over 30 years. Born and raised in Canada, she was classically trained through the Royal Conservatory of Music. She studied piano at the School of Music at VCC in Vancouver and pedagogy at Everett Community College in Washington State. She received her National Certified Teacher of Music with the Music Teachers National Association, MTNA, in 2012. Actively involved in MTNA local chapters, she's been president of Snohomish County Music Teachers Association in Washington State and North Fulton Music Teachers Association in Alpharetta, Georgia. In the past few years, Renee has gained experience with and is enjoying teaching children with special needs. In addition to maintaining a private piano studio, Renee is a voice actor and works for clients worldwide. She voices many different genres and is currently one of the voices on the Whispers from God app. Fun facts. She loves exercising, cooking, and a good cup of hot tea. And best of all, hanging out with her husband, and when they're in town, her son and daughter. Now on to Leela's conversation with Renee. Hey, Renee, thank you for being here today. 
Before we get started with your story, which I know a lot of people are going to want to know about your story, let's just, first of all, start with where you're at in your life right now. You are a piano teacher, and you also provide voiceovers for many different companies, including my podcast, which I'm very thankful for. So tell us, how did you land those two careers? Well, when I was... um a young girl, I think I had graduated high school, I'm not quite sure, and I had found a piano teacher, as we're always on the quest to find a really good piano teacher that has good um, sound teaching, and I found one. And she worked out of the basement of the music pastor's house of the church that her and I went to. And one day we, we were just doing my piano lesson, and I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. And so we're all on the quest also to find the teacher that teaches the Royal Conservatory method. So we were at my lesson preparing for an exam, and she said, we really need a piano teacher here. The people that own this music um, school need another piano teacher. Would you be willing to do it? And of course, I said, yes, of course. And so I would just was thrown into it. I had no training whatsoever on how to teach. Um, first, I started teaching out of that same, they had like three or four um, studios in that house. And then they had me um, go to one of their establishments in Surrey, BC. So I would drive over there and they had me teach the organ. Mm. I had no clue how to teach it at all. So I remember this boy would come to organ lessons and he hated it because his parents wanted him to play. And before he came, the first lesson, I just flubbed my way through it. He'd already had some lessons with another teacher. And so the very first lesson was, I was like, oh, I don't know what I was doing. So the second lesson, I got his book. And I, before he came, I was trying to figure out, what do I do? There's pedals on the floor. What do you do with that? I knew nothing. That poor boy. So, um, and then of course I taught piano too, but the organ was part of it. Wow. So now let's fast forward just a little bit. I'm very curious. Did you go on then and get a degree in teaching piano or teaching music or just in music, general music? Actually, I don't have a degree. I went up to level 10 with the Royal Conservatory. And then I went to college for a while in Vancouver and got, I don't know, a semester or two, but I just couldn't afford to do that only. So I had to work full-time, and then I taught piano part-time, and then I went to school. So I just had to drop it because I just couldn't do all of it. Um, and then I, when I got married and moved to, to Seattle, I took piano from another awesome teacher, Judy Baker, and she also taught pedagogy classes through the college. Mm -hmm. So I had two years, I think, of pedagogy through the college, accredited and all of that. And she was very passionate, still is very passionate about teaching piano and how to teach and all of that. So I learned a lot from her. So you grew up being a piano teacher. So that's an interesting way kind to of. be steeped into a profession. And it could be that you have much more experience and know-how than a lot of us who ended up getting a degree in some ways because you had to figure it out on your feet. So that's I did. an incredible story. Wow. So now 
what happened, you are a piano teacher, and it sounds like you use that as a side income during school. And then did that develop into a full-time career or were you looking to do something else as well with your life? Well, during that time, the movie industry and commercial industry and all of that was booming in Vancouver. So I was doing that also. Um, but of course, you know, that's not an everyday thing. So I would, um, you know, if the agent, and I had an agent and he would call and send me out on whatever and, and I would go ahead and do it. So I was also doing that because I'd had a big, through all my high school years and my growing up years, a big background in dance and music and uh. um, theater and so were you hoping to move towards that direction as a full-time career? Um, ultimately, yes. I was in a few dance shows that were big, and I had auditioned once to, for a show in Seattle. And so my dad drove me to Seattle to, to audition for this show. And I was so excited because it was at a big theater, well-known, blah, blah, blah. And... Um, I got home and the choreographer called me and she said, you got the job. And I said, oh, that's great. And she says, well, we just want to let you know that one of the things that you're going to have to agree to is you're going to have to dance topless in one of the numbers. <laughs> and so I declined that job. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like a very interesting life so far. So, okay, you <laughs> No to that job. And yes. that's fascinating to me that you were always into the whole movie industry. And the arts, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then they just needed extras. So then you would sign up to be an extra. Is that what happened? In Vancouver, yeah, I would do that. Or if there was a commercial, you know, I would, it was never anything grandiose, but I just, whatever I could do, I did it. Yes. Yeah. And then how did that lead into your present voiceover career? Well, at that time when I was younger, I had no clue what a voiceover was. And I um, got married and I moved to Seattle. And my husband encouraged me one day to go to an agency in Vancouver because we would go visit my mom in Vancouver. And I was like, I don't know. How do you do that? Well, now I live in Seattle. So we went and we visited her and then it just, everything kind of mushroomed. So she was awesome. And I was driving back and forth from Seattle to Vancouver doing all kinds of things at that time. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened? Then um, I had found an agent in Seattle and things started again, building and mushrooming and I was getting auditions and it was quite... I guess at that time, maybe Seattle was like a, a place where a lot of commercials were being produced, TV commercials and stuff. So I would get lots of um, auditions. A funny little story. One of the auditions was um, I had to go in and I had all this stuff. And I didn't know what the stuff was that we had to, it was a, for food. And the girl that was in there, she says, okay, I want you all to make a burrito. Well, in Vancouver, I had no clue what Mexican food was. <laughs> so I had to ask her, I'm so sorry, but I don't even know what a burrito is. So she had to tell me <laughs> what one was. Um, so that was a funny little story. But um, then my life just blew up in my face. So tell us what that means, Renee. Well, 
we would, like I said, go to Vancouver often to see my mother. And one day, it was a Labor Day weekend, and we went with um, another couple who I'd worked with. And we used to go to this place for brunch, and it was an amazing brunch, like really amazing, lovely, lovely, on the water. And we got to the establishment, and my husband and the other couple went to go sit down, but I said, oh, I'm going to go get my omelet first. So I went into the line for the omelet, and we'd been there many times, and it just looked kind of odd what the guy was doing. He looked like the cook, because the omelet guy makes omelets from scratch. He didn't look like he, he was, that was his job all the time, because the other guys would know their stuff and everything. So um, I was in line, and I told him what I wanted on my omelet, and he said, oh, I, just wait a second, I have to do something. So he reached down to go get some, now I know what it is, fuel, and he went to fuel the burner, and the burner was not off, and it was still on and not cooled or anything. So the minute the fluid hit the the tank where you would put the fuel in those little stoves, um, it shot out at me and the flames just exploded on me. Okay, so sounds like you remember most of this. This is the first time that I've heard this story as well. So what happened next? Well, I didn't know what to do. I didn't remember stop, drop, and roll. And I could hear because you can hear the flames so I could hear the flames mm -hmm. around me and I could hear the screaming and all of that and mm -hmm. I don't know what my husband told me after he came and he was the one that grabbed a tablecloth off the table and, and put it out so I was pretty well I was burned a lot 30% of my body mm. And then later, come to find out, there was a set of twins that also got burned, um, a couple of other people, but if I was the one that got the worst brunt of it. We'll be right back. Okay, so obviously you're taken to the hospital. When do you remember waking up and realizing what had happened? Well, I, I remembered all. I mean, I remembered most of it. And I laid there a long time before an ambulance ever came. And mm -hmm. um, so I got to the hospital. And I had seen a movie years ago. I can't even remember who the actor was. But I remember in the movie he was in the hospital and he had been burned. So I knew that this was very serious and what the repercussions could be. So I was scared because I knew that I could be scarred or would be scarred. And it was almost like they did not know what to do with me when I got to the hospital because I was in the little um, a room for a very, very, very long time. And I can't even imagine the pain or was there no pain? because There was no shock? pain. Because, well, when you're third-degree burn, you don't have pain because it's killed your, um, your nerves. So you, I mean, some parts weren't, but mo uh, most of the parts of my body were third-degree. 
So at that point, I don't remember being in, in excruciating pain. Hmm. Hmm. So people are listening to this story, but they don't see you. I see your beautiful face. Your face was not touched at all. Oh, yes, it was. It was. It was. Mm. It was when my dad came to visit me. um, Remember, this was years ago, but it's not a politically correct term anymore. But he said, I look like a mongoloid. Because what happens is your whole entire body just swells. So I didn't even look like me. And my face, my arms were black. Everything was black, basically. So it was only by the grace of God that my face healed to where it is. Now, have you had work on it at all? My face, no. It just healed the way it healed. Yeah. I mean, we, I would do things in the hospital that they did not want me to do. Like, they don't want you to put vitamins E on it or anything. So I would have my James, my husband, sneak it in and then I would put it on um, because I was, you know, I just wanted to get the best results possible. What's stunning to me is the fact that I had no idea about this story when I first saw you. And when I see your face, you have the most beautiful skin ever. We would all love to have the skin of Renee's <laughs> face. So, wow. Okay. So, your face looks beautiful. And you, I noticed, would wear long sleeves whenever I've been with you and high necks. So, I, I knew something. And I look back and I think, now, why didn't I ask her about it? And do you think if I would have asked you, you would have told me the story? No, I wouldn't have told you. Oh, okay. okay. No. And, I, and it, that is a whole other area to talk about, too, is how do you ask someone and do you? And, and is that a good thing to do? So you weren't offended by the fact that I didn't ask you what happened? No, I was not offended. Some people might be, but... I'm grateful that people don't ask, and I just pretend like, oh, well, I don't, you know, I just pretend like, oh, well, you don't know, that's too bad for you. (laughs) It just doesn't, I don't know. Sometimes people will ask, and I'll just give them a very brief explanation because it's still, it's still hard for me to tell the story, and maybe because I've never told the story. I guess as you tell it, maybe it gets easier. Right. Because the whole process is such a long, drawn-out, emotional process as far as healing and all of that. Well, let's, let's talk about that healing process because, you know, what I know of you now, you're amazing, you're beautiful, you're tall, beautiful hair, beautiful face, and you've managed to cover what you don't want us to see, and, and you do it so well and so elegantly, but... Uh, first of all, how painful was the process of healing? It, it's, it's very painful because people don't know about, we know about cancer and you give chemo. We know about uh, cataracts. You go for surgery and they put a lens in. I mean, you, or you basically know what happens, but people don't really know about the burn process and how, how it is. And when I was in Vancouver in the hospital, they would look at me and not know what to do. And they knew what my career was. So they, everybody walked on tiptoes because they thought she will never do that ever again. So the main process is every day, because you do blister, is they have to come in and pop those blisters. And they mm-hmm. call it deblebbing. And they put you in a bath of betadine. And that is painful. So they give you pain medicine before you go into the bath. And it's, it's a daily process. But in Vancouver, the doctor said, we're going to do surgery. 
Like they wanted to do it right away. And something in the back of my head said no. And I would keep saying no, no, no. I was basically, my husband says, you were a brat when <laughs> I was in the hospital. But, um, and no one could visit. I don't know why. So I would have friends that would come. I had dear friends and they would sit outside my window. Like you hear now about COVID, people will sit outside the window or there's some way that you can get to to your family. One day they said, the doctor came in and said, if you don't have surgery this week, then it's that or nothing. You got to be transported somewhere else. So I said, well, transport me somewhere else. Mm. And James was driving back and forth and he was very as stressful on him. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was transported to Seattle to Harborview um, Medical Center, which is the burn center in that, you know, the Northwest area. So people from Montana will be flown there. You know, everybody goes to that center. So I I was grateful for that. And it seemed like once I got there, and that was a whole process, they wouldn't fly me over because the medical wouldn't pay for it. And so I had to be, you know, go through the border, and James had to bring my passport, and it was just a whole mm. mess. And were you sitting at that time? Could you sit or anything? Or um, In Vancouver, they had me lay in the bed all the time, which is, was the wrong thing to do. Because uh. as you know now, when you they want yes. you to move. Yes. So when I got... Finally, to Seattle, it was almost like um, a whirlwind. They went into high gear mm-hmm. um, and started the medicine right away and the and the processes of the bathing again, but in a different way, you know, very efficiently. And I remember one day I pressed the button early on, like maybe it was that same day or the next day I was there and I pressed the button for the nurse and I said, I have to go to the bathroom. And she says, well, get up and go. And I said, no, I, I can't. I've been laying, I, you're supposed to bring something to help me go. And she said, no, you get up. Wow. And that was the first time I'd gotten, thank God she stayed, because of course, guess what I did? I passed out, because I'd okay. never stood yeah. for all those uh-huh. weeks. Let's back up a minute. Why did you not want surgery in Vancouver? I just didn't feel right. I felt like they didn't know that the injury was so severe and so much that they didn't give me the feeling like they knew exactly what they were doing and I didn't want them touching me and then something gets botched up. Like I, I knew I needed a good plastic surgeon. I needed a burn plastic surgeon surgeon and a team. So I just, I just did not want them to do it. So when you went to Seattle, did they eventually have, did you have to go, undergo surgery? Yes, they wanted... Of course, they knew I I needed surgery, and they wanted to do it too. But I asked them if I could please wait a little bit. Of course, I have to sit, stay in the hospital, but just wait a little bit um, to see what would heal on its own. I wanted to see what would mm-hmm. heal on its own because one of the other therapies that they gave you was a you had to get, drink a gallon of this special concoction of probably fortified vitamin filled um, beverage every day. So all of that was helping you um, heal. So finally, I was okay with having the surgery because they kept saying, you know, there is probably a timeline where you have to have it. So I had the initial surgery um, and they do skin grafts. So once you do a skin graft, the skin comes from the sides of your thighs, your bottom and your back. Once they take that, that also 
becomes a scar. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you had to think twice about how much scarring you wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. And they knew what my career was, so they were very they made sure that you know they didn't they took as minimal as they had to although it was quite a bit um so that surgery was a 7 hour surgery mm. and it's very i don't want to get into too many details but it's very bloody so you have to have blood transfusions and at the time that was the time when aids was big mm. so we had asked if james could give me blood you know Mm-hmm. put it in a blood bank so that I could get his. And they said, no, we don't do that. At the time, you couldn't do that. Now I think you can. You, mm-hmm. if, if somebody, a family member needs blood, a fam- another family member can give that family member blood. But at the time, so that was another thing that was a little scary. Um, but it, you know, here I am. I'm all fine. Um, and then, again, after surgery, the very next day, I was in ICU. They get you up. Mm-hmm. They get up and walk, and I was like, "Oh, I can't!" And they said, "Of course you can, and you just you always have to be moving." So, and I was bandaged up like from the thighs up, and I'm scared to think about the pain. But you had pain meds, you, right? And you yes. don't remember that. I think that's what's interesting about the well. Brain. After surgery, it was it was painful because they put staples. They staple <laughs> the. Um, the skin on. So I had well over, I don't know how many staples, well over 150, maybe more. And those, when they pulled, if you moved your your arm too much or whatever, you could feel it pulling. So that was painful. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Let's, let's talk about pain management. Were you ever worried about becoming addicted to yes. painkillers? I wasn't at first, but they sent me home with Percocet. And when I got home, I was taking it however many, you know, one every however many hours. But then it started getting to a point that I was watching the clock. Mm-hmm. And when that clock went around to the four hours or the six hours or whatever that time frame was, I wanted it. So when I would have to go to clinic a bit burn patient when they get out of the hospital, they have to go back to clinic so they can check it on, make sure, if, you know, and by that time all the staples were out and everything. And so I said, I need more Percocet. And they said, you do? And I said, yeah, I do. And they said, well, you know that it can be addictive. And that's all I needed to hear. Oh, I just said, okay, okay I'm done. Mm-hmm. I was, <laughs> but I would definitely was starting on that track. So I see how, you know, you hear the stories of people getting addicted to medicine after they've been discharged from or they've had an injury. Mm -hmm. I can see how that happens. Because there's still pain. It it won't go away for different reasons. For for different reasons, right. Mm -hmm. Right. So after that seven-hour surgery, did you have additional surgeries? Yeah, I had um, revisions, they call them. So... My daughter was born in 1991, and prior to her birth, I had surgery in, um, I don't even know what month it was, but I went to clinic, and they said, yes, we can do these revisions, and um, for some reason, they went and they took a pregnancy test, and the test came back negative, so they said, okay, we're good. There was no reason for them to do it. They just decided to do it. And then I went to my doctor, my regular doctor, and she took one, and it was negative. 
And then I had the surgery, which was another, I don't know how, however many hours. And then a few months, maybe 12 weeks later, I started feeling really weird. And I was, I remember I was walking with one of my piano students' moms, and I said, I don't feel good. I feel dizzy and weird. And she said, well, maybe you're pregnant. I'm like, no, I'm not. And sure enough, I was. So for that whole nine months, the burn team was very concerned. Um, and they had sent all of the medicines and all that had happened occurred in the operating room. They had sent that to um, my doctor who was going to, my maternity did OBGYN. Mm-hmm. She was just a reg, uh, MD. but mm-hmm. um, And we just watched for nine months hoping that my daughter was going to come out okay. And what were you scared of? Well, deformities or because I had been on all kinds of oh, the anesthesiology. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And all the medicines that they were pumping in, the pain meds and all of that. But so for all those uh, months, oh I was like, my. oh, here we go again. <laughs> and then what about your skin as your stomach grew and all of that? Did your skin adjust to all of that? Yes, it did. I mean, tight because you, you can feel it being, my skin still is tight in some areas, but um, once I had my daughter, guess what I did? I went back to that clinic and said, because <laughs> I had this? a lot, yeah, <laughs> I had a lot of extra, I had scars on my torso. So I, I had them remove that out, move all the scarry stuff out or the grafts and then just stitch it up. So I was able, I had all this extra skin. So I was able to minimize the scarring there. And how old were you when you had this Accident. When, when did this oh, happen? Oh, I don't like to tell my age. Well, okay. I was young. 20-something? Yeah, I guess. 20-something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it happened yesterday. Okay, yes. Because we're both 29 <laughs> yet. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I heard this term, minority body. And it was from a mother who had a baby who had very, you know, very severe um, complications at birth. And so she has learning disabilities, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and so she, her daughter, she, she thinks of her daughter in a minority body. And I thought that was an interesting way of saying that because now I feel that my son, our son Carter is in a minority body and that I, I remember going to, Home Depot with him for the first time because we were looking for things that he needed for his skink cage. And I was so aware of everyone around us and what they may be thinking about Carter. And I thought, what am I doing? Why, you know, why should I worry about that? But I was wondering for him how he was feeling as he was walking right down the Well, they aisles. are looking at him. They I are. Know. And I they know. are wondering. And I have that, I've had that too, because I had to wear all that gear, the gloves and the arms and the this and the that. And that's a very interesting, it is, it is a minority body. Mm-hmm. Or what did you call it? A minority, yeah. mm-hmm. a minority body. And I always said, people have colitis or <laughs> they have cancer or they have problem with a hernia. It's all inside. Nobody yeah. sees that. And they can go about their day. But I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And it was just, and I always felt like people were staring because they were. 
It's not, it's, I know. people say, oh, no, but yes, they were. They were staring. So, and wondering and what happened. And some people would say what happened and I would be cocky and I would say I was staring at something too long and got, in, got hit by a lightning bolt. You know, I would be, <laughs> I would be, you know. And maybe that was your defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. It was. Mm-hmm. And of course, wearing the long sleeves and stuff, I, one of the reasons, yes, to hide it, but another one, I have to because I have to protect, my skin was so damaged that being in the sun could be a nightmare because mm-hmm. I'm more susceptible to skin cancer. I just went to the dermatologist and mm. she was scouring, looking, and, yeah. and she says, you are more susceptible than anybody else, mm. so I have to make sure that there's nothing that's concerning on your body. I would imagine. They, it, that was a cocoon, a beautiful, warm, fuzzy cocoon. Mm. They looked after you and they and cared for me. And, you know, um, one of my doctors would always, every day when he would leave after rounds, he'd say, just keep the faith, keep mm-hmm. the faith. I mean, sure, he told that to everybody, but. So what was harder, the emotional or the physical pain? I don't remember the f- the physical pain. There was physical pain. The bath time was the worst The because they have to scrub your skin mm-hmm. in the betadine, and it's horrible. And, and I was in a teaching hospital, so not only is the nurse in there, but so is all the rookie doctors staring at you. And, and I looked bad, so you would see their faces like, oh, my gosh. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, a lot of me, me was charcoal black, um, the color of. Um, so... That was painful. Emotionally, I was emotional, but not not until I was released. That's when it all, because I was, then I had been broken out of the cocoon mm-hmm. and there was no one there to protect me anymore. Mm. And we haven't even gone to how this would affect a pretty young marriage. Was uh, Did you have children? You, I don't think you had children yet. We didn't have children. Okay. And... Um, I have a strong faith, and I know that God was there the entire time because men were telling my husband to leave me mm-hmm. because how could you stay with some, some with a woman that had lost her looks and all of that? Because, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, I look okay now, but there was many processes. I had a big, huge... Um, I don't even know what you want to call it. It was a lump, an elongated lump all the way along the my underneath my jawline. Um, there was li- lots of ugly things that were going on that, you know, we they would say that'll never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll never you'll never stand up straight. Um, mm-hmm. Your neck will never stretch out. You'll never do this. You'll never do that. This will always look like this. So it was it was a hundred percent a fight. That's what I would say as far as because you're always fighting yes. somebody telling you the negative. What was what's interesting is Renee. I don't know you during all of those times, and what I know of you now is your smile and the way you hold yourself and the way you dress. You dress amazingly <laughs> well, and it and it covers up what you don't want us to see. But you do it in a way that no one would ever even imagine that you had the scarring physically and emotionally like that. So 
I don't know. I'm sure it just didn't happen overnight, but it sounds like your faith had something to do with it. How did you turn yourself around and decide, okay, I'm going to live with this? And you and I have talked a little bit about this because mm-hmm. I've had my own shadow experience. Right. And you talked about that you were sad and that even your husband was concerned that perhaps you would commit suicide. He was worried Correct. about that. Right. And you never felt that. So did no. And how would you describe, how did you find yourself turning around, turning around that corner and moving forward? Not even inch by inch, like millimeter by millimeter, because in a burn hospital, on a burn ward, there are no mirrors, none. Mm -hmm. There's a piece of metal on the wall, like a square piece of metal that you can kind of see a reflection in your, in, in it, but not really. So coming home out of this great cocoon mm-hmm. that I had, because James makes fun of me. He said, I would come to visit you in your room and you'd be gone because I'd go visit people and at Harborview because it was, you know, and the nurses were great and stuff. So, but when I got out and, you know, you, we were, had just moved into a brand new house and my husband worked for Boeing and he had just gotten laid off. So all of it, it just like one thing crashed on top of one another, of one thing after another. Mm-hmm. So we were in this new house, no job, Boeing is on strike, and their strikes can last like weeks, months, you just don't know. And no med- our medical was on the line, like, are they going to pay mm-hmm. for this? We didn't know. So anyways, I'm moving to this house, because he moved, I didn't move. We were supposed to move together, and I was supposed to help him move, but he mm-hmm. had to do it by himself. And just looking in the big bathroom mirror was horrible. It was just, mm-hmm. it was devastating. And yes, I was devastated inside. Um, but like you said, I never had the feeling of ending my life, but those around me saw the sadness and were very concerned that, because it was that bad mm-hmm. that I would. But mm-hmm. inside of myself, I didn't ever have that desire. And then everyone's saying, no, you won't be able to do this. And no, you... It, it's what's interesting is the fact that now I know you and I'd be like, of course, that's exactly how I imagine Renee being. So <laughs> do you, were you always that way? Were you stubborn or do you think that stubbornness developed because everyone said, no, you can't? Well, maybe I, I was, I mean, probably a bit stubborn. I didn't want people to think that you can't do something because of a medical it's not a disability, but because your skin, when you're burned, it shrinks and 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 you contracts and and gets tight, so you can't. So I would do whatever possible, whatever was possible for that not to happen. So you were asking, how did I get over it? My first one of my first steps was to to go to the gym that I was going to, um, which was hard. But that was my first little tiny step because I had to wear pressure garments. I still have one mm-hmm. um, that I keep, and it was a jacket. I mean, it, you zipped it up, and it because you have to hold in all of your skin after surgery. Of they put graft, they graft your skin from other areas of your body, so they have to keep it has to kept be kept held down flat. So you have to wear them all the time. So I went, I went to the gym, and it was yucky but I did it but that helped with being me able to keep my skin 
limber per se, uh-huh. stretched out, mm-hmm. um, and also for my brains to feel Correct. clear and yes. and help me to get through my daily things that I would, you know, that I was doing. And we had just, I had not started teaching piano yet, but I had had a whole slew of piano students that were ready and waiting, and then mm. this thing had happened. So, um, and they said they would wait for me because my husband had dug through all my stuff to find out their phone numbers and stuff and call them, mm. and they waited, and so I, that was my other step. So they came, and mm. I also had to wear um, uh, a tight, it looks like um, what you would put on if you got into an accident and your neck was hurt, mm-hmm. a neck brace. Yeah. So I had to wear that to keep the skin flat. And then I had to wear um, head a headgear thing so that it would keep underneath my chin flat. Because remember mm-hmm. I told you I had that big, yes. ugly, naughty thing underneath. Uh, so I didn't look cute at all. Yeah. And your students came back. Yes. And what's interesting is I kind of feel that same way with students coming and they see Miss Leela after having a major trauma. And I don't dwell on it, just keep moving forward. But you know that they're thinking about it in the backs of their heads and you can't blame them. But I also see, think that they see the strength in you as well. So don't you think that they were inspired by you, even though they may have been scared of you just a little bit too, because, you know, you're a reminder of their mortality, really. I don't even know. I don't even know. Some of them I hadn't even met because they had been all over the phone. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm still in contact with a lot of them and I could ask mm. them because yeah. now they are grown and have babies yeah. and they're married oh. and all of that. But I don't know that they ever saw strength in it. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, that happened. <laughs> Maybe because kids know, can be that kids way are, too. Right. Kids are yeah. that way. Yeah. Uh, but they don't know how much they feed you in some ways too. Don't you think right. it's good for you to have something else to think about? Um, it was it was mm-hmm. very good for me to have that because mm-hmm. that was that other millimeter to get me to a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's fast forward just a little bit because it's been a devastating blow to your whole life, really. You, right, it, it absolutely derailed everything in your life, and slowly you get back on inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter, and so piano teaching became the, the a default career for you, I would say, because that you could control more. Right. And when did you finally decide that you could step out maybe into that other career again? Um, our church, uh, we went to one of the bigger churches in the suburb of Seattle where we lived and they were starting, well, they were having like sketches, like people before the message, they would have actors get up and do a sketch that would pertain to the pastor's message. And I was like, oh, look at that. And then in the bulletin one day, not right away after all, after me seeing all this, they said, we're going to start a class, like a, a group of people who, if, if you're interested in acting, you know, we'll, we're starting that. And of course, I was like, oh, because this was like years, well, I would say maybe four or five years later. Okay. So I was right there and I, and I did it. Um, so every Tuesday we would meet and then I started getting cast in these sketches and they were a blast. They were so much fun. And I love the people that I got to work with. Then the, 
guy who, Jeff Toady, he was a writer, so he would write scripts. So then he started producing these plays that we would do on special nights at the church. And they were not always Christ-based or whatever. They were life-based. Okay, yeah. And so I would get cast in those, and then he would do stuff in the community. So I got cast in those, and um, it was great. And it had, you know, so, and everybody accepted me for who I was. Of course, we should all do that with everybody. Mm-hmm. So it was a real, that was kind of the the little bit of a bridge. Right. And then the voiceover career, I, I didn't even know that you were doing that. And perhaps you weren't doing that when I first met you or you were thinking about it, but it seems like that has really expanded for you just in the past couple of years. Yeah. I, in 19, oh, I don't know what year it was, 1991, I was almost nine months pregnant. And that's, I started knowing about voiceover and I took a class mm. and um, I loved it. And then I had a baby <laughs> and then I just kind of, I guess I forgot about it. Those babies. Yes. <laughs> so then after I moved to Atlanta, that's when I, it started per- percolating again. Mm-hmm. So then I just a few years ago said, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Nice. And so I started. And tell us what that requires of you. How many hours a week? Well, um, you need to get situated with demos, and I had to get a coach, and I had to interview coaches because I wanted a good coach. So after all of that was said and done, it's a lot of work. People just think that people come up to them and say, you've got a great voice for radio, or you should be a voiceover talent. It doesn't work like that. You got to market, 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 market yourself, um, and then you got to get set up. So I teach piano Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. On Monday, I work the voiceover business up until about one o'clock or two o'clock. Then I make sure I have an hour to get ready for piano. And then, of course, now everything has changed, so I have to make sure the camera's set up and right. zoom and all yeah. of that. And then I do piano. I may do some a little bit after, especially if I get a job, an actual voiceover job, then I'll go ahead and uh, record it and, or edit it or whatever at night. And then Tuesday, I do the same thing. Wednesday, I do the same thing. I'll do it up until I always leave about an hour to an hour and a half before I teach piano. And then Thursdays and Fridays, I do it basically like a nine-to-five Mm-hmm. job. So it seems like it's kind of a neat balance. In some ways, it those two are such parallel careers because that's what we're doing too as piano teachers, marketing all the time, preparing, being our right. own uh, business. C- right. EO, CFO, all that kind of good stuff. Right. But it's neat that you've found a balance between both of them. And is there anything that you've learned from one world that you've carried over into the other world? Um. You asked me that question a while ago, mm-hmm. and I've thought about it over and over again. And yes, because when you're um, recording something, you just like music, you can't rush through it if it's something that is like right now, a lot of the auditions are about COVID or we're getting back to real life. So you, you wouldn't rush through that. You have to pace it. It's almost like musically, you wouldn't rush through um, I don't know, a Chopin Polonaise. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just, you would take your time. Um, and it has rubatos and stuff. Same with voiceover. 
And then, of course, after you've recorded it, you have to edit it. So you have mm-hmm. to take out all of the breaths, but then sometimes you might take one spot of um, a recording and you've said it three different times, but now you got to take that good time and put mm-hmm. it back into where it belongs. But you have to add enough space in between to make it flow. So it's very, very musical. Sometimes um, a, an audition will have a little link and it'll say, this is the music we're using. Mm-hmm. And then you listen to the music and you have to make it flow with that music. You can't, if it's slow, beautiful, airy music, you can't rush through it. You have to pace it to go with that tempo. So it's very, very much intertwined with one another. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't even thinking about the musical aspects of both of them. I was thinking more business-wise, but I do oh, remember business us wise, having, yeah. yes, but I do remember us having that discussion and how fascinating yeah. that is. So let's let's talk just a little bit about that because you were just asking me because you do all the wonderful voiceovers for this podcast. You were wondering if you were being too formal and should you be more casual. So can you explain what that means? What does formal versus casual mean and how do they sound? What would one be versus the other? Well, when you asked me to do them, I started doing them. And then one day I was in California and I was walk. I love to walk or exercise, period. But I was on, and I love the beach. So I was walking along the beach, but I was walking far. So I listened, I think, to three podcasts all in a row. And I felt like Leela Viss was more casual and maybe I was being too formal with the, with the, um, the bio of the guest. Ah, okay. So I would say, and now here's Leela speaking with Tim, but should it be more casual? And is now here's Leela speaking with Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you change your voice. So, and you know, we could do the same thing with music, right? With a musical right. phrase, right? Is you could play it like this or you could play it like that. So right. it's interesting that, you know, you can do that with your voice. And that would be an interesting thing for us to to have our students do as well. How can we right. say the same oh, sentence yeah. differently? Absolutely. Because <clears throat> you can say something three different ways. I'm going to the store. I'm going to the store. I'm going to the store. You can say angry, <laughs> happy, sad, you know, fast, slow, staccato. Right. Yeah. And emphasizing different words. Right, right. And Yes, because I'll notice that too. When I listen to you, you choose the words that you're going to emphasize. Yes, you have. Well, because if you've ever listened to like e-learning is a big thing right now where like my husband does, he has to do a course off of the computer and he says, oh, this is so boring. I don't think it's a course that it's boring. It's the person that's (laughs) speaking is so monotone. And so I don't want it to be that. I want Mm -hmm. it to be interesting. Right. Well, you it's, so that's it's why I'll fasc- pull different words. Yes. It's always fascinating to hear what you've come up with, how you're going to read it. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. So Renee, I know this has been a hard moment. We both held it together very well. <laughs> yes, uh, we and, and my first shadow episode, this will be the second shadow episode, is it's all about talking about the dark side, the other side of life, the part of life that we are always a little bit fearful of telling other people. And so for a long time, you've hidden that dark side from other people. And what do you now have to say about, and you may not know this right now, how it makes you feel differently, but you've told me that other people have said that you will help people if you tell your story. 
And, and do you believe that, you know, like, where are you with that? I truly believe that because sometimes I'll listen to other people's stories and it helps me. It gives me hope. It gives me faith. It gives me sometimes a brighter vision for that day. Mm -hmm. But I just didn't feel like doing that. You told your story today. This is the first time you've told me. And you said you haven't told it to very many people. And now you are sharing something, the dark side of you. And I wonder how that will make you feel. Will that make you feel any differently from here on out? And then you also were told that you could help other people by doing this. And I hope that that is the case. And I believe it will be the case because what I found in my journey since last November is that so many people have told me their stories Mm -hmm. because I shared my story. Mm -hmm. And it just made all the difference in the world knowing that, okay, wait a minute. So we're, we're not all you know, Instagram golden. We, we all have right. things that aren't pleasant. And yet we all show strength to move beyond it and forward. I just heard this phrase, stubborn hope, and it kind of reminds me of you. Yeah. <laughs> really? You had that, you know, from, because yeah. mo- yeah. It, it, from where your darkest day was until you, and, and, and now you think of where you're at now, it's quite powerful. It's very powerful. So well, thank you for sharing. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, so many people, well, what I, I didn't say earlier is I would get spokespeople. So people knew the story, but few, but I would just say, okay, you're, the, you're my spokesperson. Oh. So you tell the story. So I have little Ah. pockets of spokespeople because I know people ask and I know people wonder. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, na-na-na-na, boo-boo for you. You don't need to know. But, you know, if you really, I'm sure. (laughs) So I have little pockets of people that would, that people could go to to find out what the story is. Um, So, but now I guess it was just time. It's been a long time. Um, I've, put my kids through a lot of stuff because I didn't want to go in a bathing suit and I didn't want to go swimming and I didn't want to do this. And, and they, you, I would see little tears in their eyes mm. say, mom, come in the pool with me. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. So, mm-hmm. and that was one of my little millimeters. I started getting into a bathing suit and going to the pool and stuff. But so hopefully this will give help or sharing the story will be helpful. Um, it might, free me, I might start feeling freer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't you've know. Had, you've held a story close for a long time. So a very, 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 very long time. And not I, a little time, a long yeah, time. A long time. And <laughs> I feel like grief is my daily companion. There, it's always there. But I, from day one, have been talking about it just because of right. what Carter's accident was so big and huge as far as news was concerned and so many right. people saw it you can't hide it that right. way oh mine was too but that's I just, true i know <laughs> but it didn't make the news maybe you know it made or, the news it, but oh, it, it stayed in news yeah okay. it stayed in, in vancouver canada it didn't cross over to oh, seattle because okay. remember now that wasn't the time when there was media i know and, like right. it is I know. now so there was no way for us to really hide it whereas right. yours probably you know and i'm not trying to compare no no but um 
I'm just thinking that there wasn't as many opportunities for you to share either. I'm, I'm sure they would have, somebody would have started a caring bridge immediately for you if this would have happened Oh, back right. Then. If there was you know? such a thing. Yeah. 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 But there was nothing there. Mm-mm. So then you just held it all there right. inside. So um, I don't know if it's going to be life-changing for you to tell this story. We'll but see. We, I think <laughs> it will be interesting for you. And, and maybe it will give you just a little bit of... Um, a little bit more space. You know, right. I, I don't know how else to describe it because I know how my brain works and there's always this little part of it that's always thinking about that other part of life. And mm-hmm. it seems like you have grown with that over all these years. So maybe it will take a little bit less space. I don't know. It'll be interesting to talk with you again, Renee, about all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, for some reason, the word freedom comes into my mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to give a lot of other people the freedom to talk about their dark side, their their moment when their life changed forever. Right. And what's so neat is to see that I don't, I don't, I hate the word silver lining. I just don't agree with that phrase whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's neat to see how through it all, there is such a career as what voiceover and you can still be a lot of the things that you've wanted to be as an extra in a movie. I remember you did that in right. a couple of, and even an opera, you yeah. know, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like you've overcome so much and you've overcome that fear. And, you know, if, if there's at least one takeaway, we can all take away like, wow, she's overcome so much and stepped out. I and, think that if you have a stumbling block, you have to. It might be, like I said, a, a millimeter, just a little tiny millimeter of just to go to that next step because you don't want to, you know, your life, I don't want to say comes to an end, but as you get older, you don't want to look back and think, well, shoot, I really wanted to do that. And why mm-hmm. didn't I do it? Yes. So I want, I don't want to be that person. So that's why I take that little um, step. Every single year, I give myself another step. Oh, you do? Yeah, every year I'll say, okay, I'll do this. Okay, I'll do that. So, nice. Okay, so yeah. it's a little bit out of, you're climbing back out. I, I imagined that for a long time I was in the bottom of this barrel, scraping mm-hmm. at the sides. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're working your way out out of the barrel just a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The barrel's still there, but oh, yeah. <laughs> it might be getting a little bit smaller. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Renee, for sharing this very hard story to to tell and to hear. So we're we're so appreciative of it, and I don't know if I can even say how much I value it right now. Aww. I think it's only going to be as I listen to this again how much I appreciate this. So thank you so much, and we will make sure that we let everybody know where they can find you, so that when they need a voiceover person, oh, absolutely. You wanna, Come on. Yes. <laughs> we want to make sure that we promote all of your fine work. And I'm sure your piano students are very lucky to have Miss Renee. Is that what they call you? They call Something? me. They call me Miss Renee. Most We live Miss in the Renee. South now. so That's true. Okay. Miss, Renee. Miss Renee. Yeah. Well, Miss Renee, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Soon after I stopped recording, Renee and I continued our chat about how some of her family reacted to the accident and how one close member even accused her of causing the accident because of her lack of faith. Thankfully, 
a dear nurse who was taking Renee back to the bathtub to treat her charred skin, looked in her eyes and stated emphatically, Renee, this is not your fault. All of us would call Renee brave and courageous for sharing her story today. Yet her bravery started long ago. Step by painful step, her courage continues to grow and spread to others. Our conversation unearthed only a fraction of what tragedy and trauma brings to our lives as humans. Over the years, I've observed and respected Renee's tenacity firsthand, and now I see where it comes from. She always gives and does her best, even when faced with a mountain range of challenges that most told her she couldn't climb. I'm grateful to know now this one thing, this dimension about her, that I always wondered about. Now I know and see Renee in the light as well as in the shadow. I see her as a beautiful visual aid in a minority body of stubborn hope. I leave you with this quote by Helen Keller. Walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. This is Leela Viss, and see you in the trenches.